Hey there, welcome to another episode of ENT in a Nutshell. My name is Jason Barnes, and today we're joined by Dr. Jeffrey Staub, who is a consultant in the Department of Psychiatry and holds secondary appointments in the Department of Otolaryngology Head and Neck Surgery, and we will be discussing persistent postural perceptual dizziness. Dr. Staub, thanks so much for being here. Oh, it's delightful to be here. Thanks for inviting me. So today we're talking about persistent postural perceptual dizziness, which is also known as 3PD or triple PD, and it's something that presents to the ENT clinic when patients present with imbalance. Can you start us off by just telling us a little bit about how patients present? Sure. These are patients whose primary complaint is of uh, dizziness or non-spinning vertigo, so a swaying or rocking kind of vertigo when they're walking. These are patients who have a difficult time describing exactly what their symptoms are. And that's probably one of the key things to focus on. If the patient seems to be having a difficult time putting words to their symptoms, that in fact may be a nice way to think about this diagnosis. The other thing that they'll say in addition to their own sense of kind of a fuzzy headed dizziness or swaying, rocking uh, a vertigo is that they have difficulty in complex visual environments or places where there's a lot of patterns or movement around them. And is there a particular type of patient who presents to your clinic with this? Well, we do understand a little bit about what a typical presentation is. Patients are usually in middle age, although the range goes from teenagers to older adults. Uh, Patients usually have been symptomatic for quite some time. Um, Patients oftentimes are symptomatic for several months to even a few years before they come to see us. And these are patients who have symptoms that are troubling them most every day, as opposed to distinct episodes like what we would expect for Meniere's disease or BPPV or something like that. And in terms of the epidemiology, how common is is this and are there any predisposing factors for this type of presentation? Because 3PD is a relatively new diagnosis, the diagnostic criteria first published in 2017, we're only just now beginning to get some epidemiologic data from studies using the current criteria. And they suggest that in uh, ENT or neurology clinics, so general ENT or neurology clinics among patients with dizziness, about 20% will have 3PD as a diagnosis. But if you get to more specialized centers that focus on patients with dizziness and balance disorders, that the diagnosis goes up to about 40% or so. Uh, That's not necessarily that it's the only diagnosis because these patients can have uh, comorbidities, but at least as part of the diagnostic picture, about 20% in general practices and uh, in ENT and neurology and about 30 to 45% or 35 to 45% in specialty centers. And is there a gender predilection for these patients? There is. It's about three to two or two to one. Uh, women, so about 60 to 65 percent women. And do you find that there's often a precipitating event that happens before they start describing these symptoms of chronic imbalance? Yes, usually patients will describe some sort of an acute event. It depends on how long ago it was. Uh, So if if it's been a distance uh, in the past, it may be difficult for patients to remember all of the details, and also all the details may not be available in their records. But most people will describe an acute vestibular event, another acute medical event, a syncope, a head injury, or a other medical condition that affects their uh, balance control or causes you know, them to feel dizzy or unsteady. 
psychiatric uh, symptoms can uh, trigger dizziness. So dizziness is common with presentations of anxiety, particularly panic, or stressful life events that produce high levels of anxiety. So you see a patient in clinic, they present with this chronic unsteadiness imbalance. We've talked a little bit about the epidemiology. When you see these folks uh, in clinic, what questions do you start to ask them to try to tease out what's really going on here? So the first question I ask them is what's giving them the most difficulty? Because that um, offers them a chance to describe the situations that, that come up that are giving them trouble. And usually they'll spontaneously give examples of grocery stores or traffic or sitting in front of a computer or a TV or the feeling of never being still, never feeling like they're well planted, always feeling fuzzy. And if they start to give me those kinds of symptoms rather than distinct, clear episodes of vertigo or falls, um, then I know that I'm probably in the world of 3PD or at least the kinds of things that are in the differential diagnosis of 3PD. Do you ask some questions about new medications, other psychiatric comorbidities, that kind of thing? Right, so once I get the general history, then I make sure that it's somewhere along the line if the patient hasn't already offered symptoms that I ask them about, you know, acute episodes of vertigo, that I ask them about head injury, not so much distant past, but ones that were associated around the time of onset of symptoms. Any, if they've ever been told if they've had a heart rhythm disturbance or a heart, a heart problem of some kind. And um, medications, newer different medications, recent medication changes, and other illnesses that may have started at the beginning. And then to introduce the psychiatric part, I usually will say to patients, with all of this going on, how are you holding up? They understand then that they've shift gears to talk to them about um, their anxiety, mood symptoms. And finally, I'll then ask them, if they ever had any difficulties with anxiety or depression prior to the onset of their dizziness. Those things pretty much cover the main aspects of the differential diagnosis. Do these patients describe falling ever? Patients with 3PD can fall, um, but falls are not part of 3PD. So if the patient is describing you know, a history of recurrent falls or near falls, that has to be evaluated separately, um, whether it's due to uh, structural metabolic problems or it's due to functional gait disorder in which they're having falls or near falls. Uh, it's important to separate uh, falling from 3PD. Now patients with 3PD can say that they're concerned about falling, but that's different than having actual falls. In clinic you probably have an idea after just the history that this is going down the 3PD route, but what are you looking for in physical exam, uh, maybe even just to rule out other things? Right, so that's actually what the physical exam is for. Just because the history suggests that the patients have 3PD doesn't mean that we're finished with the evaluation because the complete evaluation requires us to look for comorbidities. And if the history suggests that they had an acute neurologic or otologic event that started this, we need to know the compensation status of that uh, event. So the exam is really geared for finding evidence of other disorders and finding evidence for the patient's compensation status. And that includes their behavioral compensation status. So for example, simple things like placing the patient in the Romberg position, and if they stiffen or have a lot of upper body sway, then they're trying to overcompensate for the feeling of, of being dizzy. Um, and that actually gets into a vicious circle which can promote the dizziness. I actually go out to the waiting room and, and escort the patients back to the office just to casually observe their gait and casually observe whether they 
walk along the side of the wall and rub, run their hand along the wall or the handrail. Simple, simple safety maneuvers like that can also let, let me know whether or not the patient is being overly cautious and therefore adding an additional level um, of morbidity. So again, the physical exam to evaluate for other causes and also to look for how well the patient is adapting um, or overcompensating for their symptoms. So we've talked about presentation, but there are strict diagnostic criteria for making the diagnosis of 3PD. Can you walk us through that? Sure. These were published by the Barony Society in 2017. And the first is that the uh, symptoms are predominantly non-vertiginous dizziness, uh, unsteadiness, or a swaying, rocking rather than spinning type of vertigo. And that has to be present for at least three months. And the reason for the three months is that we wanted to make sure if we're going to give the diagnosis of 3PD that it's not confounded by partial recovery from an acute event that may have triggered it. Next, those symptoms need not be present every moment of every day. A lot of patients will describe 24-7 symptoms, but some will have breaks lasting hours to days. The requirement is that those vestibular symptoms are present for most of the time, but not necessarily every moment. And then you're looking for the patient to describe exacerbations with either upright posture, so standing, sitting, uh, sometimes walking, um, although some patients will feel better when they're walking than standing still. And then, especially with movement, so their own movements or passive movements, so riding in a vehicle, riding in an elevator. A key feature is sensitivity to visual stimuli, so either complex patterns or moving visual stimuli around them, so the, the busy or motion-rich environment um, exacerbating symptoms then most of the time um, you'll be able to identify a trigger. And that's an important piece of the differential diagnosis because patients who describe a very slow, gradual onset without a distinct trigger are ones that I'm always a little bit more cautious about, either only tentatively making the diagnosis with follow-up or looking harder for other um, potential problems that may be causing symptoms. So, so identifying the trigger, identifying an acute medical, otologic or other medical event, or a psychological precipitant is, is an important part of the differential diagnosis and, and is one of the criteria for the diagnosis. And next, I want to talk about pathophysiology, which is somewhat complex and pretty fascinating. Can you walk us through what is the, the underlying disease process in these folks? What I'm going to tell you has emerged from converging lines of evidence, not only about 3PD itself, but also in some of its predecessors. So prior to the diagnosis of 3PD, some of these patients may have been called phobic postural vertigo, uh, visual vertigo, um, psychogenic dizziness, chronic subjective dizziness. There were a variety of different, different terms. And some of the data that are point to pathophysiologic processes actually started um, from research studies going back even 20 or 30 years. So there look like there are three consistent shifts in functioning that are occurring. The first is a stiffened postural control. Now that doesn't always mean that you can observe patients walking like a robot um, in the research laboratory and sometimes on clinical exam you can see that patients are walking a little bit more stiffly. So kind of like a walking on ice gate. A little bit broader support, a little bit more cautious with steps, and a little stiffer in, in movements. Uh, other patients you'll see have um, kind of an on-block movement of their trunk and head. They don't want to move their head uh, on their shoulders much. The next is a shift in, in multisensory integration. So in overweighing or over-relying on visual 
uh, information as opposed to uh, vestibular or somatosensory inputs. This is again something we can measure in the laboratory using the subjective visual vertical or other tests that look at how much visual flow affects the person's spatial orientation or dynamic visual acuity. And those two are thought to be adaptive processes that get stuck. In other words, in the setting of an acute crisis, whether it's a vestibular, neurologic, or other medical crisis that, that has caused somebody to have space and motion symptoms of, or systems affected, you'd expect them to use a little bit more safety precautions to adopt a more cautious or walking on ice gate and to rely on vision to help guide them if they're in acute vestibular crisis, for example. Um, and it looks like what happens with 3PD is that those instinctive adaptations, physiologic behavioral adaptations get stuck and the patient does not fully come back to baseline. There are also now about a dozen neuroimaging studies using functional imaging and, and similar advanced imaging techniques that show us sort of a surprising finding actually, and that is that the vestibular cortical regions, um, and there are many that are involved in vestibular cortical networks um, centered around the uh, insula and the right temporal parietal junction, that they're actually underactive and less well integrated or less well connected on functional MRI, both at rest and in response to vestibular or visual inputs. And uh, the hippocampus, especially on the left side, less well connected in its usual networks. So it seems that these broad cortical networks that give us our sense of space and motion are not operating together as well as they might be. Perhaps that's because patients are sort of in an instantaneous mode of postural control rather than their broader sense of space. That's a conjecture, um, but it's one of the ways to fit these data um, into the picture. And one question I like to ask is about the natural history of a disease. What happens if this goes untreated? Does it continue to get worse, spontaneously go into remission? So we do have some data, not so much from 3PD on that, but from phobic postural vertigo and chronic subjective dizziness. There was one really uh, nice study done years ago in Germany um, on patients with phobic postural vertigo, again, one of the predecessors of, of 3PD. And what they showed is that over time, the vestibular symptoms will wax and wane. But only about 25% of patients um, have what you could consider to be a spontaneous or it's, it's a gradual uh, kind of a remission. The majority continue to have symptoms and they oftentimes will develop anxiety or depressive symptoms as a result just because of the burden um, of their illness. So it can be self-limited at the very beginning. In other words, there are some patients who look like they're starting down the route of 3PD maybe for two to three months after a vestibular crisis and then it resolves quickly. But for those, once it's settled in, once it's a year or so long, spontaneous remission is not the rule. Continued symptoms are the rule. And you've mentioned the differential diagnosis, and this seems to be key when you're seeing these patients to rule out what else could be going on. What's on your differential diagnosis when you see these patients? Yeah, so it's, it's, it's actually more of a rule-in process um, than a rule-out process. That's the, you know, we've all been taught to look at and eliminate things from the differential diagnosis in, in, in medicine. But in this case, what we're looking to see is if a patient fits the criteria for 3PD, are there other things that are going along with it? We're looking for episodic or other chronic 
otologic disorders, so episodic ones like recurrent BPPV or Meniere's disease or vestibular migraine. Um, we're looking for other chronic things that could either be running with 3PD or instead like bilateral uh, peripheral vestibulopathy or central neurodegenerative disorders uh, such as Parkinson's or cerebellar degeneration. Uh, we're looking for either the coexistence of or uh, triggers by uh, anxiety disorders in particular, seeing whether or not uh, traumatic brain injury was a trigger, and if so, are, are there other features of, of post-concussive consequences that are present with the dizziness, and then whether or not any other chronic medical conditions, heart rhythm disturbances, medications that the patients are on um, are contributing to their symptoms. And when you see these folks, what are your first steps or next steps in workup? Are you obtaining laboratory studies, getting imaging, vestibular testing? What's your typical regimen for these folks? So it depends on the history. Often patients, by the time they've come to us, have had at least some basic examinations and and testing. So if the history is clear, um, and if those test results don't show active structural or metabolic problems, um, then I can pretty reasonably come to a comfortable um, diagnosis. But if there are some uncertainties, so this is a person with a slow indolent onset, then I'm going to look more for degenerative disorders both on serial examinations uh, imaging. If the patient's still describing things like head movement induced or posturally induced um, vertigo or unsteadiness, then I want to know the compensation status of their uh, peripheral and central vestibular system, so good laboratory testing would be important there. If it's someone who has significant metabolic disease, then I would want to know clinical laboratory testing to make, just to, to understand uh, where metabolic parameters might be. And once you feel like you've secured the diagnosis, can you tell us a little bit about treatment? How does this uh, start and what works the best? So there are three treatment strategies, all that have some level of data from um, clinical trials, mostly uncontrolled or open trials, but some uh, controlled trials now. Vestibular habituation exercises are really important. I have all patients uh, see a, a qualified physical therapist and develop a plan that has a couple of components from the physical therapy side. One is normalization of gait, so especially a more relaxed, fluid gait and stance. And then second is habituation or building up tolerance for the movements and motion-rich environments that give people trouble. And so that will be a gradual kind of improvement. Second is medication. There are two groups of medications that can be helpful for this. Those are the SSRIs, so the family of antidepressants that has uh, fluoxetine, sertraline, and, and then the SNRI, so again, that would be venlafaxine and duloxetine. Those medications seem able to cut symptoms by about 50%, um, which means that patients will go from an impairing level of symptoms to sort of a nagging background of symptoms. No other classes of medications have a lot of um, data or even a hint of benefit. For a long time in ENT, we've used benzodiazepines to suppress chronic dizziness, and, and that can be done um, in 3PD, but we use that as a last resort. So medication-wise, it would be the SSRIs and the SNRIs um, as first line. And then there's growing evidence that psychotherapy can be helpful too, usually combined with vestibular therapy or medication, and that's cognitive behavioral therapy. And the trick there is to work with a psychologist to help that the, the psychologists understand exactly what we want them to do. Um, 3PD is a new diagnosis throughout medicine and, and, and isn't well known to psychiatrists or psychologists. And so 
they may not know exactly what it is that we want them to do. But psychologists who work with patients with, with chronic medical conditions um, generally have the tools that we want in terms of managing the safety maneuvers, counteracting catastrophic thinking, that mean like the patient says, I'll always be this way, I'll never be better, you know, those kinds of, you know, uh, anticipating poor outcomes. Those are features that uh, our psychologists can help us with. And when you're treating these patients, do you find that they're ever reluctant to admit that there's a psychiatric component to their dizziness? They say that it's more, no, I'm, I'm dizzy, not struggling with anxiety or that kind of thing. How do you approach that? So first off, it's important for us to remember that 3PD is not a psychiatric diagnosis. Um, even though it kind of evolved from, you know, when I started working in the field 20, 25 years ago, these kinds of things were called psychogenic dizziness. That was a big lump of things. But there's a whole bunch of stuff that was in that lump, including vestibular migraine and canal to hissing syndrome that we didn't know about then. And so I tell patients that this is not a psychiatric disorder, but there are certain psychological features that play a role in it. So being having a little bit more of an anxious temperament, being a worrywart by nature, uh, being a little uncertain um, about moving around causes people to avoid movements. And so those are behavioral features. And most patients, if you discuss it that way, will recognize that that's what they're doing. In fact, they probably would already have told you that's what they're doing in their history. And when I prescribe medicines, even when I prescribe antidepressants, I'm very careful and, uh, to say to patients, this is your dizzy medicine. You know, you're going to go to the pharmacy and the pharmacist is going to give you a handout about the anxiety depression indications. But for you, this is a dizzy medicine. Uh, for seeing the physical therapist, this is a dizzy treatment. And even seeing a psychologist, this is about your dizziness. And so I make sure that all the features of the treatment plan are aimed at the patient's dizziness. Ensure psychiatric comorbidity if it's there, but first and foremost, the dizziness. And, and if we do that, generally speaking, patients will kind of come around to the idea that we really are focused on their dizziness and, and their treatment plan is aimed at reducing those symptoms. How do you counsel patients on outcomes and expectations? So actually, we do have some pretty good data and experience on this. What I tell patients is that the first goal is to get them to the point that they can go about doing what they want to do on their average day uh, without dizziness standing in the way. Because that's the most common outcome, is that we get to the point that patients have a low level of symptoms that are not impairing. So for the person who's not working or struggling to work, struggling to take care of things at home, I say to them, our first goal in the next three months is to get you to the point that you can do those things. And I, and I specifically tell them about a three to six month expectation because in all of the treatment interventions, that's about the time that it takes. And then I do say to them that there are patients who become asymptomatic. There are patients who are cured of 3PD, but that that would be the second level of expectation. The first one is better functioning, get your life back. And then the second one is we'll see whether you're one of those folks who um, have a complete remission. And how do you follow up with these patients? I uh, will have the treatment plan, the three elements of the treatment plan, or, or at least a couple of the elements, whichever um, is most suited to the patient, get those put in place, and then see them back usually in a couple or three months. Um, and the reason for it is because that's the time frame that it takes to know whether the therapies, either physical or psychological therapy or medications, are beginning to show benefits. Once I've sort of optimized their treatment plan, um, and gotten them on a maintenance. Then medications we generally leave in place for a minimum of a year. Um, the therapies they can taper as they've achieved the you know, maximum benefits from those and I'll allow the physical therapist and the psychotherapist to kind of guide 
my hand in that. Then I invite patients to you know, call back if they have exacerbations. Um, and the thing is that about that is that 3PD tends not to spontaneously have flares. So if a patient calls and says, you know, I've been doing great for six months and now things are going downhill again, then if to reevaluate what's, what's happening, have they had another vestibular crisis? Have they had a flare of their vestibular migraine or Meniere's disease or recurrences of BPPV that hasn't cleared well? So maintenance over time is really an expectation that symptoms will stay in good control you know, as long as the maintenance plan is in place. And then at the year mark, sometimes at the two-year mark, I'll sit down with patients and see if they wish to taper off of their medication or other treatments. And, and that depends. Some patients want to do that. Some patients are still mildly enough symptomatic that they would rather stay with treatments, and, and then so we'll keep it going. Well, Dr. Staub, this has been super helpful and very informative. Um, I'd next like to move on to our summary, but before I do, is there anything you'd like to add or anything we haven't mentioned? I think the biggest thing to add is just um, our mindset as physicians. This is an illness that's defined by its symptoms and not by test results, and also because there are these psychological factors. Both physicians and patients sometimes, too, um, will feel uncomfortable with embracing this diagnosis based on its, on its history. But if you apply all the criteria, the sensitivity and specificity of the criteria themselves is in the mid-80s, and we don't have any tests in neurotology that are any better than that. And so we can, we can have confidence in, in being familiar with the criteria, applying them as they were developed, and then convey that confidence to our, to our patients. Um, and I think that's a, that's a key element of this, that this is a diagnosis that we rule in, not rule out, uh, and that's a little bit of a different change in mindset for us and a little bit of a different change in mindset for our patients. Well, thank you so much. I'll now move into our summary. 3PD or triple PD is a functional syndrome that involves chronic unsteadiness, particularly with exacerbation during complex visual stimulation. Patients often present with an episode of vertigo or other neurologic insult, and subsequently they have high anxiety or exceptional vigilance about this insult that leads to kind of a cyclic process that leads to 3PD. The current understood pathophysiology is that a hypervigilant response to this insult leads to top-down interactions among cortical, vestibular, and visual networks that lead to maladaptive responses and balance. The diagnostic criteria are as follows. Requires one or more symptoms of dizziness, unsteadiness, or non-spinning vertigo on most days for at least three months. They can wax and wane and don't need to be present continuously. Uh, the second criteria is persistent symptoms occur without specific provocation but are exacerbated by three factors, upright posture, active or passive motion without regard to direction or position, and exposure to moving or complex visual stimuli. The third is that the disorder is triggered by events that cause vertigo, unsteadiness, dizziness, or problems with balance, including acute, episodic, or chronic vestibular syndromes or other neurological or medical illnesses. And finally, symptoms cause significant distress or functional impairment. Workup for these folks involves imaging, lab studies, and vestibular studies to make sure there aren't coexistent uh, pathophysiologies that are occurring. The current best treatment is an SSRI or SNRI with evidence that cognitive behavioral therapy is helpful as well as uh, vestibular therapy. Patients often respond well to this treatment those who are treated earlier often uh, do better, but this is something that needs to be followed for quite some time. 
Dr. Staub, anything else? No, that was a very nice summary. Thanks. We'll now move on to the question-asking portion of our episode. As a reminder, I'll ask a question, pause for a few seconds, and then give the answer. So the first question is, what are the common symptoms of someone presenting with 3PD? These patients present with chronic unsteadiness or imbalance, feeling off or feeling foggy, and there's often exacerbation by complex visual stimuli such as crowded areas or even patterned flooring. Next question, what are the diagnostic criteria for 3PD? To say this in brief, uh, the diagnostic criteria are greater than three months of dizziness or unsteadiness, which is non-spinning vertigo. Symptoms occur without provocation, but are exacerbated by upright posturing or complex visual stimuli. The disorder is triggered by events that can cause vertigo or unsteadiness. This can be uh, neurologic or psychologic uh, insults, and symptoms cause significant distress. And finally, what are the treatments for 3PD? The three main treatments for 3PD are SSRIs or SNRIs, coupled with vestibular retraining therapy and cognitive behavioral therapy. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.